we have a copy of the scriptures, I invite you to turn this evening to Luke 18, Luke's Gospel in the 18th chapter, as we continue in our study in the Gospel of Luke. <laughs> For those who were here this morning, uh, I had tried just part of the story of what I told you about the, trying to print the notes. I'd actually, I'd tried to turn the printer off and turn it on again. It wouldn't turn on. That was part of my problem. As soon as I left and had done, was done talking to everyone, leaving this morning, this afternoon, I went in, turned it on, no problem, <laughs> printed something immediately, no, no issues whatsoever. So it's just the way it goes sometimes. But I have my notes, printed them at home just in case. So we have them tonight. Luke 18, as we're continuing in our study in the Gospel of Luke, we proceed and we have gotten as far as verse 30, so we're picking up verse 31. I was going to skip over the few verses that we have here between 31 and 34 and go straight into the event of a blind man. <clears throat> But I, I decided against it. I want us to look at these verses with the Lord's help. So, Luke 18, verse 31 is where we will read from this evening. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Then he took unto him the twelve and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that were written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles, and shall be mocked, and spitefully entreated, and spitted on, and they shall scourge him and put him to death, and the third day he shall rise again. And they understood none of these things, and this saying was hid from them, neither knew they the things which were spoken. Amen. We'll end the reading there. Those Make up the verses that we will consider tonight with the Lord's help. Let's pray. Let's seek the Lord again. Ask for His help. Our God, we come before Thee. We give thanks for what we've been singing. We're thankful for that expression of Isaiah 53. And we bless Thee for the one wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. We bless Thee for the deliverance that comes through the suffering servant of God and how thankful we are that He bore our sins upon His own body, that He was willing to be that sacrifice for sin, that He was willing to put His arms around all the sins of all of His people and put them away. Oh, what blessed truth this is. Lord, I pray that should there be any here that have yet to understand this, or if they have some understanding but have yet to believe, that Thou wilt work upon them. And remember us who are Thy people, give us teachable hearts, deliver us from stubbornness that prevents us from hearing from God. At the close of this Thy day, we want to go away with another word from the Lord. And so we pray, please grant us that cleansing for preacher and hearer and for the Spirit of God to be poured out upon, yes, me, but as was the case in Cornelius' household when the Holy Spirit fell on all them that heard the word, may the same thing to some degree happen here tonight. Magnify Christ above all else, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The famous New England preacher Jonathan Edwards is known by many for his remarkable resolutions, 70 of them that he drew up as a young man over a fairly short space of time as he considered his desire to live life for the glory of God, as he thought about ways in which he could manifest that and show that as he tried to reflect 
his appreciation for what his Savior had done for him, he notes down, as I say, 70 resolutions. Now, some have commended him for it, some have condemned him for it, some have said, well, there's, there's good in it, and there's danger in some of that as well, just because of the, the bondage that perhaps it might put people into. But whatever you think of Edward's resolutions, one of the most important traits to develop as a person is a sense of resolve. That's what Edwards was, was showing. He wanted to be resolved in a good path, to, to prove that these things are worthy, understand these things are worthy, and follow in that path no matter what. Resolve is an important trait. It's something that we need to encourage our children in. It's, of course, something we, we see when they're young, and we give them a job to do that's maybe just something they don't enjoy. We, we see a lack of resolve sometimes to finish the job or find excuse to, to lay down the, the rake and not rake up the leaves or the, as it is in our backyard, the gumballs from the sweet gum trees and all of that. There's always this kind of difficulty to finish the job. It can be hard sometimes to, to just manifest or show resolve, but it's not something exclusive to children. It's found among older folks as well. We, we struggle at times to carry on in a good path, to show resolve in the things that matter. We may sit under the sound of God's Word and, and give ourselves afresh and say, Lord, I'm surrendering my life again, and there may be particular things that you know need to be corrected, and you're trying to put them right, and you're determined you're going to do so, and no sooner have you expressed that in prayer than already the weakening resolve is there, and you struggle to follow through on your resolutions. We know that this is a real thing. One of the things that's pointed out concerning the Old Testament Jesus, Joshua, is that he wholly followed the Lord. This was his trait. It, and as you read his life, as you see with the circumstances that he was in, you see his, he's a man of, of, of resolve. He, he just has this resolve. He, he thinks, he believes, he trusts that God is going to give them the land and so off he goes, he, he, he's one of the spies sent, and, and he sees, yeah, no matter how difficult it may appear to human uh, understanding, God has promised it, let's, let's go in. Of course, that wasn't the case for 10 of the others. And he spends 40 years or so wandering around, lamenting every morning as to the, to the, the loss of that, and, and yet he stays resolved. When he's 85, he's, he still has this kind of intent and purpose, and he is ready to go out and to go in for battle. God has preserved him, and because of, God has given him that strength of body, he's going to reflect that in a resolution to carry on doing what it was he wanted to do four decades prior. Resolve. It is an important trait. Finishing projects, following through on commitments, keeping vows. These are important things to do. And our Lord Jesus was the most resolved man who ever lived. Most resolved in the sense that, first of all, no one knew the right course of action as well as he did who has ever lived upon this earth. He knew the right course. And knowing the right course, he then determined and gave himself to that course and would not be persuaded to do anything else. He would not turn to the left hand or the right hand. And as he said himself in Luke 9, no man having put his hand to the plow and turning back is fit for the kingdom of God. That was not him. He was the one who was persevering on the right course and he was prepared to do whatever the Father desired. We thought of that a little this morning. Well, as we come to verses 31 through 34, we see something of that. And that's how I've titled the message a resolved Savior, a resolved Savior. He is resolved. As you read these verses, that's what comes across. At least that's one of the aspects that comes across. Here is one who will not be deterred, not be discouraged. He is going to go through with what is before him. Now, Matthew records these words as well in Matthew 20, as well as Mark and Mark 10. And so I'm going to draw from not just what we have in verses 31 through 34, but also from the additional material we have from those other Gospels as well. So as we look at these verses, we trust with the Lord's help 
I want you to note the intention that he reveals. The intention that he reveals. Verse 31, Then he took unto him the twelve, and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. Now, in Mark's gospel, Mark 10, verse 32, we are told there that they were going, and, and they were in the way going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus went before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. So these are details that Mark gives that, that Luke does not give, that the, the disciples are amazed and afraid. And following that, it says, And he took again the twelve and began to tell them what things should happen unto them. Amazed and afraid. So the language we have here is given in a setting of the disciples reflecting in their spirits a certain, as, as the language is, amazement or astonishment, as it could be translated, and even fear that is in their hearts. They can sense the danger. They can discern the hostility. The, the anger of the religious leaders is, is gaining momentum. The heat around those crowds can be felt it's palpable. They want him dead. The word that is translated here, amazed, is not used very often in the New Testament, but it is used in the conversion of Saul of Tarsus in Acts 9, 6. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? That may give you some sense of just the, the feelings that are filling the hearts of the disciples at this time. They're feeling this fear, and they are amazed or astonished. And I can't be absolutely certain with this, but here's how I see it. It would appear that the, the, the resolve of Christ, the, the perseverance of Christ, the, the fact that Christ seems to be unmoved by the hatred that surrounds him, causes them astonishment, especially as he makes his way continuing toward Jerusalem. The Lord Jesus had already exemplified before his disciples this kind of courage. Go to John 7. Turn for a moment to John chapter 7. Just so you see what I mean here. In John 7, if you pull together the events, this is around the end of Luke 9. So the end of Luke 9, there was language used by Luke about them going to Jerusalem. That, that was stated there. And so you come to John 7, so it's quite a ways on from where we are in Luke 18, but John 7, verse 1, after these things Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry, because the Jews sought to kill him. So there's this intense desire to see him dead. Now this isn't the first time, this isn't you, you go back to John 5, you'll see that it's been reflected there as well. Verse 2, Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. For neither did his brethren believe in him. I'll refrain from passing remark on his half-brothers desiring him to go to Judea, head toward Jerusalem in that area, because they don't believe in him. So it's just an interesting thing to note there. Verse 6, Then Jesus said unto them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. Go ye up unto this feast. I go not up yet unto this feast, for my time is not yet full come. When he had said these words unto them, he abode still in Galilee. Verse 10, But when his brethren were gone up, then went he also up unto the feast. Not openly, but as it were in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And so on. And so he ends up being seen there. And so this is an earlier example of the hatred that is there. They want him dead. And yet Jesus ends up going in that direction. The disciples are following along and experiencing this as well. Now flip over to John 11. John chapter 11. John 11 coincides roughly with Luke 19. So we're not quite there yet. We're in Luke 18, but we're getting there. And if we look at John 11, you remember Lazarus is dead. 
And if we read from, let's skip down to verse 11. John 11, verse 11. These things said he, and after that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. I want you to think about what they're saying there. If he sleep, he shall do well. There's a motivation there. (laughs) If he's just asleep, he's fine. And undergirding that is, let's not go there. Now that becomes clear as you read on. Howbeit Jesus spake of his death, but they thought he had spoken of taking of rest and sleep. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. To the intent ye may believe, nevertheless let us go unto him. So they're heading to Bethany. This is near Jerusalem. They're going that way. Verse 16, Then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, unto his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. So that helps you get a sense of how they're feeling about going towards Jerusalem. They feel the danger. The closer we get to Jerusalem, the more likely we're going to die. They can feel it. It's in the air. The anger, the hatred, the sense of trying to seize upon an opportunity to put Christ to death is felt by everyone. And so you go back to Luke 18, and you can maybe understand a little bit about why it is Mark records that they were amazed and afraid. They couldn't comprehend why Christ would continue in this direction. So he's, we go up to Jerusalem, verse 31. We're going there, and they're having to be instructed that he must continue in this path. Now, there's a few things to note with regarding the intention that we have here in verse 31. First, Christ addresses a fear by counseling in private. He addresses the fear by counseling in private. You have a sense of it here. He took unto him the twelve and said unto them. In Matthew's gospel, Matthew 20, 17, it records Jesus going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples apart in the way. So he separates them from the crowd. They're afraid. They're astonished. Why are we going this way? And he takes them to be cut off from the rest of the crowd. All the others that are following, the 70 disciples that were perhaps there as well, he brings them along to speak to them in private. There may be a time to publicly rebuke fear, occasions when it would be right just in a public setting to do so. I was thinking of Deuteronomy chapter 20 regarding that. You may turn over there, Deuteronomy chapter 20, because there's a a context here in warfare in which this is the kind of thing that goes on, at least it would seem. Uh, Well, you'll understand as we read. Deuteronomy 20, we'll, we'll read the opening four verses just so you get the context of what's being dealt with. Deuteronomy 20, When thou goest out to battle against thine enemies, and seest horses and chariots and a people more than thou, be not afraid of them, for the Lord thy God is with thee, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt, and it shall be, when ye are come nigh unto the battle, that the priest shall approach and speak unto the people, and shall say unto them, Hear, O Israel, ye approach this day on to battle against your enemies. Let not your hearts faint, fear not, and do not tremble, neither be ye terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is he that goeth with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. Words of encouragement. Don't, don't forget, God's with us. Let's go. Let's not be discouraged or fearful. Go to verse 8. And the officers shall speak further unto the people and shall say, and they shall say, What man is there that is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go and return unto his house, lest his brethren's heart faint as well as his heart. This was publicly declared. If you're feeling fear, go home. Because it spreads. It's going to affect others. You're going to be out there, and you'll be standing beside another soldier who expects you to be just as resolved as him, and you're going to expose him and leave him if you run back. And it's going to weaken 
the lines if you do that. So, better you go home. And there may have been occasions when people in the fear of their hearts would have had to go up and walk away from the crowd and show themselves to be too afraid to engage in warfare. So there are times in which fear must be dealt with in a public fashion, but, but it is also right to take people aside. Private counsel, close-knit counsel, and that's what the Lord does in Luke 18. He takes the twelve. He sees their fear. He, he can sense it, and they're amazed at what he is doing, and so he addresses it. It is said of the Messiah in Isaiah 50, verse 4, The Lord God hath given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. And Christ had a word for people. He knew exactly how to give it. The woman at the well would have not have responded the same way had the disciples been there. So they're sent, they're moved to be away from there so that Christ can deal with her on his own. In this instance, the twelve need to be cut off and alone with Christ so that he can give this word that they need to hear. Now, there are some of you that are going through a period of uncertainty in your own life at the present time. Maybe you sense it among other people as well. And I couldn't help but think that this is a time where you come alongside one another. When you, when you sense that someone is feeling that uncertainty and they need a word of encouragement, they need someone to draw alongside and speak to them. I can encourage you to do that, just like the Lord does here with the disciples. So Christ addresses a fear by counseling in private. Also, Christ addresses a fear by reminding them of the prophets. Reminding them of the prophets. Then he took unto him the twelve and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished." When Christ speaks this way, He is emanating confidence in the Old Testament Scriptures. He is declaring, He is, he is emanating this sense that, that the Word of God is going to be fulfilled. We have built our entire faith on this Word. We trust the God who has given us this Word. And everything that they have stated and recorded is going to come to pass. He had confidence. Christ always exhibited confidence in the Word of God. At the time of His betrayal, whenever Judas came with all the soldiers and Peter takes out a sword that's ready to start battle there, Matthew 26, verse 53 and following, Jesus says, Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father, and He shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then shall the Scriptures be fulfilled that thus it must be. Even in the midst of being surrounded by soldiers, ready to be taken captive, Jesus Christ is governed by a confidence in the Word and by pointing to the prophets, saying that this is what must happen. He is encouraging the disciples to rest in what they know from the Old Testament. Now, we could go over some of those passages that deal with the things that concerning the Son of Man that shall be accomplished, we could do that. The problem is, if we did that, it wouldn't really help in terms of the context for the disciples because they didn't get it. Those passages that they knew, in one sense they knew, they weren't able to apply in the moment. We know that from verse 34. They understood none of these things. And this saying was hid from them, neither knew they the things which were spoken. They don't get it. We'll look at that more in, in a moment in due course. But it is true for us, let's just say, just say this, to take the Old Testament Scripture, take all of the Scriptures, and to believe them with the same confidence as the Lord Jesus. One of the foundations of, of biblical counseling and one of the kind of practices that you must understand when you're giving counsel to people as a believer is to establish first and foremost, do you believe that this is God's Word? Are you ready to accept what it says? 
people come looking for advice and <laughs> you, you want to open up the Scriptures and read it to them, or in some cases have them read it, read the Word of God. If they don't believe it, what's the point in giving the counsel? So you can save yourself a lot of time. If you ever find yourself in a scenario where someone's looking for your advice, looking for your counsel, and you want to give them counsel from the Word, the first thing is to say, are you prepared to accept what this book says? Because if you're not, I'm wasting my time. We're wasting both of our time. What's the point in this? You have to be willing to accept the Word. And if you've ever been in that scenario, you, you may have experienced it, I don't know. But if you do it often enough, you will find that whereas you're inclined to think any Christian or any faithful church-going person, when they're confronted with the Word of God, that they're going to say, yes, I want what it has to say. But what you will find is that's not always the case. And you can be dumbfounded by the resilience and the hardness of heart that exists among people who profess faith in Christ. They don't want the Word. It's very sad. Make sure it's not you, by the way. Make sure it's not you. Be open all of the time to what the Word says in the plainness of its declarations, in its exposure of all forms of sin, in its encouragement to believe when we are enveloped in fear. Trust the Word. So as he addresses fear in them, he reminds them of the prophets so he counsels them in private. He reminds them of the prophets. And then he confirms the plan. Not much really to say here, but he plainly states what will happen. And verses 32 and following, that that's what he does. This is what's going to happen. This is what is going to occur. And this is not what they're expecting, is it? When he says, He shall be delivered unto the Gentiles, shall be mocked, spitefully entreated, spitted on, scourged, put to death. This is not what they're looking for. Which is a reminder of the fact that what God is saying to us at times isn't always what we want to hear from Him. We always want a word of comfort, don't we? We do. And there are many words of comfort. But there are realities that cannot be avoided. Truths that we have to face up to. Facts that are in the Word of God. Experiences in life that God has appointed in His wisdom and sovereignty. And if you go to God and you seek Him for His counsel, He's going to tell you this is how it's going to be. And it may not be what you want. So, we've considered His the intention he reveals. Secondly, the insight he gives. The insight he gives. Verse 32, as he carries on speaking to them, he says, He shall be delivered unto the Gentiles, and shall be mocked, and spitefully entreated, and spitted on, and they shall scourge him, and put him to death, and the third day he shall rise again. Christ had perfect understanding of what lay before him. He knew he knew all the details, inside out. One of the things that you'll find in the Word of God, and I was convicted a little bit about this myself, is that when the Bible refers to what Christ endured for us, it nearly always, as far as I can tell, refers to them in the plural, sufferings. It's not just suffering, but they're sufferings. Second Corinthians 1.5, the sufferings of Christ abound in us. 
Hebrews 2.10, the captain of their salvation, perfect through sufferings. I mentioned recently about Peter making multiple references to glory and suffering, but it's sufferings nearly every time. It's in the plural, referring to the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Sufferings. And so there are passages that build up these sufferings. You have it here, multiple experiences. This is all part of the sufferings. It's not just the cross. It's all sorts of experiences. When you read Isaiah 53, and it refers to him as despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. These are building multiple experiences of sufferings, being despised, being rejected, the sorrow, the grief. We are told he is the grief bearer, the sorrow carrier, wounded, bruised, thrashed with stripes. We're told he was oppressed, afflicted, cut off, stricken. We're told that it pleased the Lord to bruise him, put him to grief, make his soul an offering for sin. Sufferings. So you have them here. If you pull together all the account that is given in this moment, in this event, the first sufferings that you have, first of the sufferings is the betrayal of Judas. Matthew 20, 18, the Son of Man shall be betrayed. He shall be betrayed. If you go to Matthew's account of this, he says he will be betrayed. That's the first part of it. The prophecy concerning this is found in Psalm 41, verse 9. Yea, mine own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. Have you ever been betrayed by a friend? Someone who was meant to be right beside you, someone you trusted, someone you depended upon, someone you thought had your back, someone you would never have imagined would speak ill of you. And if they did have something to say, they would come to your face. Painful. Very unpleasant. You can have it work, you can have it in the church, but perhaps the most painful experience is when it happens in the home. Many divorces feel like that. Betrayal. You wonder at how hard and careless and cold some people can be. Have the spirit of Judas. Sells Christ for the price of a slave, 30 pieces of silver. The Savior of the world is valued as a slave, 30 pieces of silver. And then the token. How will we know in the dark? who it is. The one I kiss. Betrayed by a kiss. Oh, you say, well, Christ knew about it. I mean, he's saying, here. He says way back in John 6, that one of you hath a devil. He knows he's there. But don't let his knowledge of those things diminish the, the real feeling of betrayal that he felt. The betrayal by Judas. The arrest by the religious leaders. Again, Matthew twenty eighteen, Betrayed onto the chief priests and onto the scribes. They are governing. They've been looking for this for years. Oh, so long they have looked for an opportunity. And it has come to them. And they arrest him. What delight they take in that moment. Finally they have him. 
They had other opportunities, but there's always people around. There was fear of what the crowd might do. Now they're alone. It's dark. No one can see but his disciples. And they take it. They arrest him. They represent the entire nation in a certain sense. Prophesied in Psalm 118.22, the stone which the builders refused, the rejected, has manifested here in them arresting him. These are the religious people. How many can give account of having looked up to religious leaders, trusting them, believing them to be men of God, only to find out with the passing of time that perhaps they were never anything of the sort? It was true of these religious leaders. And how that would have been felt even by the disciples. Surely they can't. Surely, surely, surely their religion must intervene. Surely their conscience must be pricked. Perhaps they'll just take him away for questioning. And when he gives all the right answers, they'll let him go. No. Part of the sufferings. You have the charge by the Sanhedrin. Again, Matthew 20, 18, and they shall condemn him to death. They, the leaders, the religious elite, Caiaphas and so on, they shall condemn him to death. They charged him with blasphemy. They brought all these witnesses in together and none of them would agree. They brought this faulty, made-up charge, a kangaroo court, it's done in the middle of the night. You're not meant to do that. Court sessions do not happen at night, but they're, they're, they don't care about rules and regulations. They have a, a job to do, an objective in mind. We're going to lay a charge on this man, finally. One of blasphemy. Imagine the Son of God charged with blasphemy. The blasphemy of the charge. You couldn't even see it. But they couldn't put him to death. So then you have the execution by the Romans. And this is where Luke makes it very plain. He shall be delivered unto the Gentiles. Of course, his audience is Gentiles, so he wants to make sure. <laughs> Luke's not in the business of making his audience feel as nice as they might. He wants to let them know, you all were involved. This isn't just a crime of the Jews. Gentiles had a hand in this too. Again, reading from Matthew 20, he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles and shall be mocked and spitefully entreated and spitted on. They shall scourge him and put him to death. Well, that's what we have here. Matthew specifically says, to crucify him. Not just put him to death, but to crucify him. And this is what they did. Mocked. They know not what they do. Treating him with spite. Spitting on him. Have you ever seen someone spat upon? Have you ever seen that? I hope you've not done it. Have you ever seen it? I have. It's an awful thing, you know. It's really, it's quite a thing to see someone spit on another human being. Never mind the Son of God. Part of his sufferings. And all leads up then, we're told in verse 33, they shall scourge him. You ever looked into that, the scourging? Pilate hoped it would be enough. If I do this, maybe they'll let me, let him go. But no, 
They would not be satisfied. Scourging. A whip. Sharp objects. Tied on to the ends. For the sole purpose of tearing up the flesh. Multiple lashes. Often sufficient to end a man's life. Tearing up the flesh of the body of our Lord. A body that was prepared for him. Given to him. That he might identify with the crimes of men. And die in their place. And they're tearing it up like it's nothing. And then put to death, or as I say, Matthew records it, crucified. Jesus knew. He knew what lay ahead. He knew, as we said this morning, he, he was... It's, He was in no doubt as to what the path entailed. I've remarked on this before. I say it again for the benefit of those who have not heard. But one of the things that people want to know and pay money to know, or at least be in the illusion, under the illusion of knowing, is the future. All sorts of novels have been written about the future, the possibility of knowing the future, what you might do if you could know the future. For millennia, people have been given as charlatans to promise people that they might read their future tea leaves. Among Armenians, (laughs) sometimes you'll have a family member, if you're familiar with... uh, Turkish coffees, Armenian coffees, very strong little coffees and very thick sometimes. And some, on occasion in, within the family you'll have, what they do is they drink the coffee and when they're done they turn the, the coffee cup over upside down on the saucer. And then occasionally there's a family member, usually of the older generation, who will read the stains or the markings of the coffee and the inside of the coffee cup. Like you know in your future. Sometimes done in jest, perhaps in some cases done in all seriousness. People want to know the future. If only I knew the future. Well, let me let you in on something. Knowing the future is the last thing you want to know. If you had your whole life mapped out for you when you turned 18 years of age, there you are, here's, here's when you're going to die, 35, 57, 89, whatever, here's where you're going to die, and here are all the events that are going to transpire in your life. Here's who you're going to marry. Here are how many children you will have. Here's the job and career you will have. Here are all these things. But in the midst of all those things, there are also the challenging times. You're going to see when you get sick, when your parents get sick and pass away, when the person you married gets sick, when maybe one of your children is sick and dies, or whatever. You see all those details as well. If you had that all mapped in front of you, 18 years of age, you could not live Knowing. It doesn't matter how many mountaintop experiences between 18 and the day of your death. The only thing you'll ever be able to think about are the sorrows around the corner. You would not be able to get them out of your mind. You'd be crippled by fear. It is the mercy of God to all 
men to not know what the future holds are mercy. And those who pry into it and seek to dabble in it and maybe even play games, young people don't even play games in that arena. It is folly. You don't want to know your future. And it was part of the suffering of the Son of God to have crystal clear understanding of what lay in store. I am going to Jerusalem. We go up to Jerusalem, he says in verse 31, and here is what's going to happen. And of course, the triumph of his resurrection. The third day he shall rise again. (laughs) Praise God for that. He knew that as well. knew all the victory that he was going to obtain for those he represented. The glory it would begin bring to the triune God. The salvation procured for sinners. He knew all of that as well. So he sees through all the suffering, sees beyond all the difficulty, sees right to the very cross and the experience of the agony of Roman crucifixion and realizing on the other side, there's victory. Thirdly, the ignorance he faces. The ignorance he faces. Verse 34. They understood none of these things. And this saying was hid from them. Neither knew they the things which were spoken. Well, the middle clause there gives an insight into part of man's problem. He cannot know what God will not reveal to him. And yet it doesn't, it doesn't stop us reading this and wondering, how could they not understand? It's not like he's using big words. I mean, these words are, these sentences are plain. The apostles were slow to learn, really slow to learn. But the Lord was hiding it from them. Go to Luke 24, flip over there. Luke chapter 24. Verse 1, we'll take time to read here from verse 1. Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came unto the sepulcher, bringing the spices which they had prepared, and certain others with them, and they found the stone rolled away from the sepulcher. And they entered in and found not the body of the Lord Jesus. And it came to pass, as they were much perplexed thereabout, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments." And as they were afraid and bowed down their faces to the earth, they said unto them, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. (laughs) It all comes back. And returned from the sepulchre and told all these things unto the eleven, the eleven, and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women that were with them, which told these things unto the apostles. And their words seemed to them as idle tales, and they believed them not. So others are still struggling. You go to verse 17. He said unto them, What manner of communications are these? that ye have one to another as ye walk and are sad. This is the two in the road to Emmaus. And the one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answering, said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem, and hast not known the things which are come to pass there in these days? And he said unto them, What things? And they said unto him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet, mightly, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. See, this is the problem. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. This, this is really part of the problem. The disciples, yes, there, there's a spiritual side in which they couldn't understand without divine help. 
But there was another side, and the other side is this. They refused to accept an alternative to what they wanted to happen. That was part of the blindness. You see, go to Mark's Gospel. I know time is running out here, but just go for a moment to Mark's Gospel to see how Mark follows the event that we have considered tonight. Mark 10. You see it from verse 33 and 34. All right, we go up to Jerusalem and so on. Verse 32, rather, through 34. Then 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come on to him, saying, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. And he said unto them, What would ye that I should do for you? They said unto him, Grant unto us that we may sit one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand in thy glory. All they are thinking about is his reign. Like the two in the road to Emmaus. We believe that he should redeem the nation. And they're anticipating some reign in which they, there will be those they hope that they will be sat right beside the Lord as he reigns. And they're told, of course, to sit on my right hand and my left hand is not mine to give and so on. I'll not consider any more of that. I, I, I half wonder if verse 34 of Luke 18, they understood none of these things, is Luke's way of saying, <laughs> Luke's way of summarizing that discussion with the disciples. Let us sit in the right hand and the left hand. Let us... And the discussion around that, Luke doesn't deal in those details. He just said, they didn't get it. Didn't get it. Now, the, the application here, reading this, is, can be summarized in the language of the parable of the sower when Luke says in Luke 8, take heed how you hear. That's the record, record given of Jesus giving the parable of the sower. Take heed how you hear. Christian, do you ever think about how it is you hear? How is it that I hear? I've mentioned it before. John Calvin's summary of his conversion is that his heart was made teachable. He lowered himself under the Word and was open to listen and respond to the Word of God. Are you there? How many sermons have you heard and forgotten? How often are you like the disciples, understanding none of these things, not knowing the things which are spoken? Sometimes we pray for lost people that have been in the church. What do we pray? We pray along the lines of, Lord, resurrect your word in their hearts, don't we? We pray that something that was put there in their youth would be resurrected to bring them to a sense of conviction of sin and turning on to the Lord. And I believe it's a good prayer to offer. The disciples were given a specific promise, but I think there's a general application that the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance. The Spirit is able to do that. He did it for the apostles so that these words, these truths, all of a sudden became clear to them after the resurrection of Christ. But so it is for those who have not turned on to the Lord. The Spirit of God, wherever they are, as you think of people that you're concerned about, the Spirit of God can bring to remembrance the things that they have heard. I wonder, should we not even pray ourselves, Lord, help me to remember the things I've forgotten that I have been told? These verses, as brief as they are, you should be looking at them, asking the question, why? Why would the Son of Man give himself to this? Why, why should he purposefully go, be delivered unto the Gentiles, be mocked, spitefully treated, spat upon, scourged, put to death? Why go through all of that, even with the resurrection? Why, why endure it? Why experience it? Why put yourself there to go through all of that? 
If you're here tonight and you're reading that this is historical reality, this happened. You need to ask yourself, why? Why did Jesus of Nazareth, why did the Son of God, why did He go through all of this? And to give the briefest answer, indeed a one-word answer, it is love. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. He loves. Love is moving. It is beating in His heart. Every step to Jerusalem, as there the disciples are amazed and, and afraid at the resolve that He shows, they can't comprehend how someone can be so resolved amidst an atmosphere where people want Him dead. But all he feels is not the hatred of the world. It is the love of God in his soul. Love beats with every step he takes to Jerusalem. Love for sinners. Love for you. Love for me. So he went through all of that. For nobodies like we are. We're nobodies. I mean, what are we? That God should be made flesh and suffer. This is, this is why we don't play with sin. This is why we don't make light of what our God has done for us in His Son. This is why we live seriously. We believe this is serious business. It was a serious thing for God to take flesh and suffer. It's a serious thing for us to profess that we are the benefactors of his sufferings. Oh, may our lives be marked by a taking up of a cross daily and following him. May they be marked by a contentment, a holy contentment, that though the future be hidden, though I know not what lies on the morrow, I am wholly resolved to follow my Lord. Oh, there's a sweet providential overlap between this morning's message and tonight, is there not? May the Lord bless His Word. Let's bow together in prayer. Where are you before God? How is it with your soul? You're going to die. We are all, we are all of us. Should the Lord tarry and not come back in our time, we will die. How will you do in the swelling of Jordan? Are you ready? Have you given serious thought to the sufferings of Jesus Christ and what it means to neglect, to not believe, to not trust in Him? If you need any help, any spiritual questions or challenges you're facing, be sure to let me know. I'm glad to open the word with you. Lord, bless thy word. Please help us. Those of us who profess thy name, may we be as marked by that same holy resolution seen in our Lord Jesus. May we press on toward the mark. May we be always abounding in the work of the Lord. May we fight the good fight, lay hold of eternal life. May we not be found wanting when Jesus comes or calls. Save those yet unsaved. Have mercy on them, we pray. And bless our fellowship. Strengthen us to serve thee this week. 
And again, may the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be the portion of the blood-bought people of God now and evermore. Amen.